1: I'm going to read our Bible reading this morning. And then we're going to get Mitch up to preach. So uh, this morning's verse is up on the screen. uh, Matthew chapter 2, verses 13 to 18. When they had gone, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. Get up, he said. Take the child and his mother and escape to Egypt. Stay there until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child to kill him. So he got up, took the child and his mother during the night, And left for Egypt where he stayed until the death of Herod and so was fulfilled what the Lord had said through the Prophet out of Egypt I called my son when Herod realized that he had been outwitted by the Magi he was furious and he gave orders to kill all the boys in Bethlehem and its vicinity who were two years old and under in accordance with the time he had learned from the Magi then what was said through the Prophet Jeremiah was fulfilled a voice is heard in Ramah Weeping and great mourning. Rachel weeping for her children and refusing to be comforted because they are no more. I'll just pray for Mitch as he comes up. Uh, dear Lord, we thank you uh, that we can come here and gather today and hear your word. And we just pray for Mitch as he brings that to us. And um, yeah, may we our ears and our hearts be open to what he has to say to us today. In Jesus' name, amen. This morning's reading, it's not
0: exactly your traditional Christmas reading, is it? So, actually, it's really good here. I've got a manger. I have a prop here I didn't have to set up. This is our image of Christmas, isn't it? This, the manger, the star, the shepherds, wise men giving gifts. We create our nativity scenes and we have a little one in our lounge room. It's this magnet that goes around of a star and it's really cute. Our nativity scenes are snapshots of perfection, yes? That's what we want. Now, how many of you have seen a nativity scene where you've got this image of Herod's soldiers coming into Bethlehem, slaughtering the innocents? How many nativity scenes have Mary and Joseph madly grabbing their possessions and fleeing to Egypt? None. So why does Matthew... Do this? Why does he have this beautiful image of the wise men coming from the east and bowing before Jesus? And the next scene the wicked King Herod ordering the death of the baby boys in Bethlehem. Now, as Protestants, we don't tend to follow the traditional um, Catholic church calendar. But it's interesting. On December 28th, the church traditionally remembers what they call the slaughter of the innocents. Every year to remember that. The death of these children. And while these scenes here are brutal and horrific, there's a purpose to them. That There's an, actually an image of hope that will come from that. Now, you may find that hard to believe. The, the reality was that life in first century Israel was brutal and hard and tough. That people lived under rulers who were unjust, who just made decrees, and it happened. Innocent children were killed. And that's, that's just how life went. There's, according to the year that, The great Caesar Augustus was meant to be born. Some magician had this decree or prophecy or whatever that there'd be this great ruler coming from the Roman Empire. So the Roman Senate decided, hey, we have to kill every male boy to ensure that the the true king is born. When uh, Nero, he is an emperor after about the year 64 AD, he actually killed the apostle Paul and Peter. The year that Nero died, apparently, according to legend, his magician saw this comet in the sky and knew that that was going to symbolize Nero's death. And so Nero said, Oh, well, I don't want to die, so let's kill all the noblemen and their family. This is the world that Jesus grew up in. It was brutal, it was harsh. But you know what's amazing, friends? The gospel still flourished. Who's Jesus preaching to? He's preaching in a world where brutal men make these decisions on the lives of people at a whim. But also, too, Matthew has a theological purpose. And you remember, way back to the first week, we looked at Jesus' genealogy. What's, what's Matthew's purpose? Does anyone remember? What's, what's Matthew trying to tell us with the three different eras, the, the reference to the brothers, the, the 14 names in each generation? Does anyone remember? Anyone brave enough to call that? What's Matthew trying to do? What's the purpose of that? Huh? The, the lineage? Yeah, what's, the, what's Jesus doing? He's fulfilling what? The Old Testament. Yeah. And so here, Matthew is doing something similar. If, if we go back to the time of Moses. Moses was born in Exodus chapter 1. What happened to the nation of Israel? Where were they? What country are they living in? Egypt. And what did Pharaoh decree what happened to the male Israelite babies in Egypt? They're to be killed. Yeah. Now... Where does Moses flee to in order to get safe? Well, actually, let me rephrase that question. What does Moses do? What does his family do in order for him to be safe? Where did they put him in? A basket, yeah. Okay, now let's sort of jump back to Jesus' time. What country is Jesus living in? Living in Israel, the tribe of Judah, in this region of Judah. Who, what king... Herod, what's his label? Does anyone remember? Herod at that point was what? He was meant to be the king of what? The Jews. So do you see this amazing contrast that's happening here? Instead of Jesus finding safety in the land of Israel, he actually ironically finds safety in the land of Egypt. And what Matthew is doing, he's showing that Israel has become like Egypt. King Herod, he's like a new pharaoh, putting to death Israelite male boys. Also, another thing that's really, really cool here, it's kind of connected in with Moses, is, do you remember who was the man that had the fancy coat and dreamed lots of dreams? What was his name? Joseph. And does anyone know what his father's name was? Jacob. Now, if you look back in Matthew's genealogy, it says Joseph's father's name is, can anyone guess? Jacob. Yeah, look at that. That's, that's, that's not an accident there. And like Joseph, he had three dreams in the Old Testament. Jo- Jesus' father, Joseph, also has three dreams. And there in that dream, he sees that how his family is going to be saved. This is just Matthew showing here how Jesus, in the midst of brokenness, in the midst of horror, he's actually bringing salvation. For God has done it before. He did it in the time of Moses, where Pharaoh was enslaving the nation of Israel. People are living in horror, in fear. Baby boys are being thrown into the river Nile. You just couldn't imagine anything worse, could you, as a parent? Murray, you're going to be a parent in a couple of weeks. Imagine that. You're having a baby boy, aren't you? Chuck him in the river. Just it. Parents here, you just cannot fathom. I cannot fathom that, throwing my baby boy into the Nile. I cannot imagine seeing Herod's soldiers coming in and killing my baby boy. It's just horrendous. But in the midst of that horror... What did God do? It took years and years and Moses had to flee Egypt and live out in the wilderness for 40 years in order for him to come back and lead the people out. And what Matthew is doing here, he is highlighting how, yeah, this is just horrendous. This is horrific. This is just unimaginable suffering. But if God brought an exodus once, he's going to do it again. And Matthew quotes, he quotes here from the prophet Jeremiah, And it says here from chapter 2 verse 18, it says, A voice is heard in Ramah, weeping and great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children and refusing to be comforted, because they are no more. In, in Jeremiah chapter 31, verse 15, where Matthew takes this from, um, at this point, Jeremiah, he, in the year 587 BC, the Babylonian armies came and surrounded Jerusalem. And then when they smashed through the walls, destroyed the city, raised the temple, they collected all the exiles. And actually, they used Ramath as this sort of, I guess, station before they sent the exiles off for their 2,000-mile journey to Babylon. And here's Jeremiah, and, and Ramath is tr- the traditional um, burial place of Rachel. She was one of the wives of Jacob, and she had two children. She had Joseph and her boy Benjamin. And so Rachel died in the Old Testament on her way to the Promised Land, and she was buried there at Ramath. And now, what Jeremiah does is he personifies Rachel as the mother of all of her children. Of Israel. And here, as she's seeing just the horror of her children being taken to exile, here she is weeping. And as she is weeping for her children, she refuses to be comforted because they're no more. And so and so Matthew leaves it there for us. But but one of the things with in what we call um Second temple exegesis, that's a big fancy word for you. You can take that home at Christmas and say, I learnt today about second temple exegesis. So what the rabbis would do in this second temple period, this is after the second temple was built, is when they quoted from the Old Testament, Their, their assumption was you had to read the whole Context. They kind of knew. Well, you guys should know your Bibles inside out, back to front. If I just sort of quote a little bit, you would think about the rest of the quote. And so, if you look at your Bibles, Jeremiah chapter thirty-one, and from verse fifteen, it says, "No voices heard in Ramah, mourning and great weeping. Rachel weeping for her children, and refusing to be comforted, because they are no more." It's really sad. That's horrible. But then there's a but. Verse 16, this is what the Lord says, restrain your voice from weeping and your eyes from tears for your work will be rewarded, declares the Lord. They will return from the land of the enemy. So there is hope for your descendants, declares the Lord. Your children will return to their own land. So Jeremiah says, at this point in time of the year, 587 BC, Rachel is weeping. Metaphorically, they're just crying for her lost children. But you know what's going to happen? Those tears will stop. Those tears won't last forever. One day, guess what? Those children are going to return home. And so what Matthew has done here, he said this tragedy, this slaughter of the innocents, this is a horrific event. And Rachel is once again weeping over her lost children. But the implication is, and we know what happens, the weeping will not be the end. There will be rejoicing. And in our kind of reverse Exodus imagery, Jesus doesn't spend his life in Egypt, does he? No. What happens? He, Joseph gets a what? He gets another dream, which is really interesting, isn't it? And they come back. Jesus here is, this is what's wonderful about the New Testament, just merges all these Old Testament images. Jesus here is like this new Moses coming to rescue his people, to bring in the true exodus. This week, if you were watching the news, there was a horrendous tragedy in Tasmania. Uh, I think of just the horror that those small children would have gone through in the moments when the wind took a jumping castle. And and 10 metres, that's about as high as this roof, that's a long way. For those families, there's not going to be a lot to celebrate this Christmas. In our church, we know what the Vane family are going through. Christmas will be different for them this year. And there are many others here who I'm sure have things going on in their lives where Christmas will be difficult. I look at the uptake in COVID. Who knows what that's going to bring to border closures, lockdowns, or even just being in isolation over Christmas. Uh, In our minds, we we want Christmas to be like this, this perfect moment, this perfect nativity scene. Uh, That's what we we do. We we have the star there. We just think, oh, man, I just want my Christmas to be perfect. But we all recognise that we live in a life that's more like what Matthew depicts with the slaughter of innocents. There is pain, there is suffering, there is tears. But see, and this is what Jesus has done. Those those mothers that were weeping their tears the moment when Jesus was a small child would eventually, 33 years later, be Mary's tears as she watched her son die upon the cross the true son of Bethlehem, being slaughtered. But it's because of that great act that one day none of us will ever shed tears again. And so even in the midst of pain and suffering and tears, we can look at Christmas time to the manger, to the star, to the wise men giving their presents, to the shepherds out in the field and say that is our sign of hope. We can read here about Rachel weeping for her lost children and not being comforted. But deep down knowing that, well, one day her children will return. One day she will no longer have to shed tears. This is what the gospel does. It gives us hope in a world which does not seem to have hope. It gives us almost this... Not even an explanation, but just this comfort. There almost doesn't seem to be an explanation for why a man like Herod would do this, apart from just being purely insane. But it gives us a measure of comfort in a world where it seems just to be out of control and insane. What's interesting is in the early church, there was a church commentator by the name of Osiris, ossimus it's an interesting name. In the 6th century, he wrote a commentary on the book of Revelation. And in chapter 12, which is, depicts this sign of this great dragon chasing after this woman, and I'll read a little bit out here. It says here, this is Revelation 12, it says, A great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and a crown of 12 stars on her head. She was pregnant and cried out in pain, and that she was about to give birth then another sign appeared in heaven, an enormous red dragon with seven heads and ten horns and seven crowns on his heads. And anyway, this depicts this story of this woman and her son being chased by this horrendous dragon. And, and the dragon here, he's unsuccessful. He cannot kill this woman's child. And so what the early church recognised is that what John was doing in Revelation 12 was giving us like a, a, a depiction ...of this moment when Herod tried to kill Jesus. And they recognised that this was actually a cosmic event... ...that the the person working behind Herod was Satan himself. So for them, they almost like... ...this gives us kind of an understanding of what may have caused the suffering. Actually, it was Satan himself, this, this great dragon. And so what also... We can look at from this passage of the Sort of Innocence is perhaps we just do not know what cosmic purposes are happening, what God is doing. The events in Tasmania may just seem a random, horrendous event. We may never know this sign of eternity, what God is planning, what his purposes are throughout this. And this is why I love the Gospels, because it does not mince around with life. Life is brutal. Life is hard. But to give the generic Sunday school answer, Jesus is victorious. Jesus is the winner. And so, friends, as we think, reflect on this passage this morning and reflect on the manger, reflect on the star, reflect on everything good about Christmas. Also, too, just reflect upon the fact we live in a broken, sinful world. But it's a world Jesus came to transform through the power of his spirit, through the power of the cross, and through the power of the resurrection. Friends, let me pray for us. And Lord, as we just live in a world of brokenness, and pain. We recognize that for us, Christmas is a time where we cling on to the good things in life. And there is so much to celebrate and to be joyful for. We also do, Lord, see that this world is still under the curse of Genesis chapter 3. And so that will mean that there will be tears and pain and suffering. But we thank you, Lord, that you've come to break the curse, to break the pain. And the tears we suffer. And Lord, we thank you that one day that you will dry each and every one of our eyes. That one day the Herods of the world will cease to exist. And so Lord, I just pray this Christmas season, with the Lord's uncertainty, that Lord, that we have the certainty that is just found in you. And so Lord, we thank you for that. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.